0: morning again today I have the joy and the honor of interacting with the question why do we believe the Bible why do we believe the Bible is the word of God Um, I was telling Sam of all the subjects in this apologetic series I had just preached on why we believe in God but of all these subjects in this apologetic series, I think this is, the one that I, this is the one I'm most excited about because really for this period of time, I'm just able to stand up here and tell you not only why I believe the Bible, but in a word, why I love the Bible, why I love this blessed book, what it has done in my life and what I hope it will do in yours. And I also know that um, the, even the questions sometimes of apologetics, for example, like why we believe in God, I think they can be quite abstract, Right? And maybe you noticed that last week. I was talking with some people after the service. And I really, I felt that myself, that some of the arguments from logic and science and the language of metaphysics can feel, uh, by nature, just uh, hard to grasp. right? And I even was expressing that I, myself, even as I was preaching through this, even though I enjoy making arguments like this, I found a certain peace anytime I just was able to read the scriptures, like even through the sermon. Like, I'm just making an argument and then coming back down and reading a scripture. There's just a certain stability that you feel as a preacher and as a speaker that whatever I know, whatever I say, I know this is true. And so uh, I was blessed by this. And I don't, this is not just subjective, I I mean, it is subjective, but not just that because, right, the scripture is called the milk that nourishes. It's the rock upon which we can build a house, the foundation. It's a lamp that shines. It's a seed that will bear fruit. It's like rain that waters the land. Right? This is what the scripture is. It's meant to have this effect. And so I am, yeah, all that to say, I am very excited to tell you why I believe and love the Word of God. Why I believe and love this blessed book. To connect uh the two subjects together, so uh why we believe in God and why we believe in the scripture. There's this quote, um, it was actually from someone who was summarizing the teaching of a man named Francis Schaefer, and I really liked this quote. It just, it blessed me. Again, tying together why we believe in God and why we believe in the scriptures. He said this, if there is no God who exists, we are doomed. Okay, there's no God who exists, we are doomed. But if there is a God who exists and who does not speak, we are equally doomed. Catch that? If there is a God who exists and who does not speak, we are equally doomed. But then he says this But if there is a God who exists and who speaks, then our salvation will be found in his words. I say, Amen. And I wanna I'll talk to you later on in the salvation found in those words. But again, if there's a God who exists and does not speak, we're doomed. But there is a God who speaks, right? There is a God who speaks, that's why we preach. (laughs) we're not just preaching off of human words. This is the very word of God. And that's what our passage was read this morning. All scripture is given by inspiration of God, is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness. Why? That the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. Our God has spoken. And this is what this message is about. He has spoken and what he has spoken is true. And we believe that. And we really want all the world to believe that too for their own good, and for their own salvation. Now, though this book needs no ultimate defense, I do want to pray to the Spirit uh, who inspired it, that He will grant me the grace to speak rightly uh, about it and everything that I say. So let's pray one more time. Yes, Father in heaven, it's really comforting that the God to whom I'm praying right now about saying speaking rightly about this word is You're the God who literally wrote this word and the one who is most passionate about making sure it's honored. So God, by your spirit, help me rightly honor it in everything that I say with my tone, with my words from a true heart. May it be pure and right. Lord, your words are pure and they are right. Help me speak what is true about it. And I pray that we as a church just would stabilize in the com- finding the comfort and foundation in this word in all areas of our life. And that to anyone who is not persuaded, that you would persuade them today of the goodness of your word. But I also pray for the whole church, even in the vein of apologetics, that maybe even through this message and the reflections that follow, they would be more equipped to express to the dying world their love and belief in this word and therefore be more persuasive. So Lord, will you grant that according to your riches and glory. In the name of Jesus Christ, we ask this. Amen. So uh, I always like to just start with the basic structure that I want to follow. So really big picture structural points. I'm actually hoping to preach two different sermons on the scriptures. So this one specifically is going to be on the authority of the scripture. So why in general we just believe it. And then uh, one I want to preach in a couple weeks is more specifically, be a little more technical, but on the question of canon. So that means which books make up. Why do we believe these specific books? Not any more, not any less are the scriptures than the questions of even maybe translation and then the manuscripts. So uh, that'll come, Lord willing, in a couple weeks. So again, this one is on authority, but within uh, this message today, I just, two main headings. I want to, one, just summarize what we believe about the scriptures, okay? So just in general, very simple overview, summary of what we believe about the word of God. And then after that, two, and then in more in the apologetic vein, uh, giving a defense for our faith. Why do we believe this? Why do we believe that this is the case? All right, so first things first, this is just very simply what we believe about the scriptures. I'll look at 2 Timothy in a second here, but uh, there's this acronym as an overview that I've always found super helpful just for summarizing the doctrine of scripture. The acronym is CANS. You could also use SCAN, but I like CANS. Either one's fine. But so C-A-N-S, the C means the, the scriptures are clear. They are sufficiently clear. God, meant to, God wrote them in a way that we could understand them and he wanted us to understand them, right? So C, the scriptures are clear. A, and this is the main one I'm gonna focus on today, the scriptures are authoritative because they are God's word. They are an authority in all life and practice, okay? The N, necess- necessary. God's word is necessary. It is necessary for us to learn of salvation and how we ought to live, But then S, connected with that, it is sufficient. It is sufficient for teaching us the way of salvation and how we as Christians ought to live a life in godliness. Okay, so again, cans. Clarity, authority, necessity, and sufficiency. I think all of those are absolutely true. But again, now coming back down, my main focus is going to be here on the authority. So looking at our text again, 2 Timothy 3.16-17. I'll read it one more time. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. All right, now, notice the phrasing of this. All scripture, all of it, okay, all scripture is given by inspiration of God. And this is the phrase I'm just really going to linger on here, okay? All scripture is given by inspiration of God. Now, I don't normally dive into the Greek, but I think it helps actually here. So right underneath the phrase, is given by inspiration of God, the Greek word that is beneath that is the word theopneustos, okay? Theopneustos, which is two words combined into one, two Greek words combined into one. On the one hand, it is God, theos. On the other hand, it is pneustas, the breath, okay? So it's two words combined together, God and breath, God-breathed. That's the word given, under, given by inspiration of God. And so this is what Paul is saying here. Although God wrote through human means, he inspired it, right? Although God wrote by human means, he inspired it. So intimate is the connection, okay, so intimate is the connection between scripture and and God's mouth, that it can be called God-breathed. Literally coming from the very lips of God. This is what scripture is. It comes from the mouth of God. And Jesus obviously believed this too. Very famous passage in Matthew 4. It is written, men shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from where? Comes from the mouth of God. Right? It is written, man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from the mouth of God. We believe that all scripture, all 66 books that we have before us are given by inspiration of God, breathed from the mouth of God. He used human beings to write his very, very words. Now, this is a very important point to consider when we're thinking about scripture. Because since the scriptures are the very words of God, then in a very, very important sense, what you believe about the scriptures, you also believe about God. Okay? Since the scriptures are the very words of God, your doctrine about scriptures will usually reflect your doctrine about God. For example, if you say that the scriptures can be wrong and it is God who spoke it, what are you saying about God? Right? If you say that the Bible contradicts itself, what are you saying about God? He's a liar, right? If you are saying that the Bible is immoral in what it teaches, what are you saying about God? Obviously, this cannot be. Friends, the word of God is breathed out by the perfect king of kings. It is perfect in absolutely everything that it speaks to. It is perfect in everything that it speaks to. And I actually really like the way our our statement of faith words it on the scriptures. So I'll, I'll read it and then make a couple of thoughts. This is how we say it. All that now needs to be known of God, man and salvation has been revealed in God's word, the scriptures, the 66 books of the Bible. These documents have come to us preserved by the spirit as fully faithful representations of the original manuscripts, which are God breathed. Okay. And this, this last part I think is really important. Although penned by human authors, are without error in all areas that they address, okay? They are without errors, error in all areas that they address. Now, I'm underlining this last part because I think it's increasingly important. All areas that they address. Now, the reason I think this is important, maybe the story will help showcase it to you. Um, sometimes people in the church, if they're traveling somewhere, if they're going to college somewhere, will ask me, hey, can you look up a church for me? And so, like, I'm happy to do that. And so a couple months ago, someone asked me, hey, look up a church for me in this certain college town. And so I was looking up searches. And one of the first things I do, I go on the website, and um, just a couple things I like to look at. But one of the first things, what do they believe? What do they believe in general? But what do they believe about God and about the scriptures? And uh, one of the first churches I pulled up for this gentleman, this is what it essentially said about the scriptures, okay? We believe that the Bible is without error, whenever it speaks to spiritual matters, okay? We believe that the Bible, and this is just my summary of what it was saying, we believe that the Bible is without error in all spiritual matters. Now, you might think this is semantics. This absolutely isn't, okay? But but here's the hard part. It's not what they're saying, it's what they're not saying. Because I would agree, yeah, the Bible is without error in all spiritual matters, okay? We agree with that. But if that's all you say, if the Bible is only without error in spiritual matters, then what are you leaving room open in that it can be an error from? Historical matters, stories about Jesus that are not essentially spiritual, scientific matters, moral matters, okay? This stuff matters. This stuff really matters. And let me tell you, you will know immediately if you go into a church that does not believe this stuff, especially from the pulpit, We believe the scriptures, are, though penned by human authors, are without error in all areas that they address. Period. Now, I I really mention this in an apologetic sermon because what I've noticed in observing apologetics and even my own heart is there's this strange temptation when you're defending the faith, explaining to someone what you believe, to give up some of these doctrines that uh, maybe are a little more embarrassing. Um, I was I was listening to a church historian talking about how the how the liberal church has shifted away from believing in this, that the scriptures are inerrant, and he pointed out that in almost every case, when a theologian would make the case we shouldn't believe in the inerrancy of Bible, it was based upon the conviction that they were essentially saying we want to be more persuasive to the unbelieving world, so we got to get these things out of the way so that they can then believe. It is. I think really hard for me to describe how insane I think this is. In other words, I think what they're essentially saying, give up the very foundations of our faith to win some to the faith. Right? Give up the, the very book that perfectly reveals Jesus Christ in an effort to win people to Jesus Christ. It doesn't make any sense. I I thought of this analogy. I, I, th- I think it follows. But imagine there's this king in this Mighty, impregnable uh, mountain fortress. Meaning the fortress cannot be overcome, right? And he has a large army in there with him. And uh, this other similarly sized army is marching against it, and uh, they have no chance of overtaking the overtaking the fortress. But what if the king's counselor looks and sees the army coming and says, "Hey, I have a suggestion. We want to win those people to our side. So this is what we need to do. We need to take down all our defensive systems." Then we need to go out the back door. We should then let them all in the front door. They can do whatever they want inside our fortress. Then we're going to come around the front door. We'll knock on the door and say, hey, do you want to surrender to us? Okay, this is what it feels like. You can't give up the word of God in an effort to win people to yourself. I would say throw the counselor over the wall. Okay? You can interpret that how you want. Just... Yeah, the main application point I'm trying to make here is, brothers and sisters, do not give up up what you believe in in order to persuade the unbeliever, particularly this point. Do not be ashamed of it. This is God's word, and it is without error in everything it addresses. Okay? It is God's word. It is without error in everything it addresses. Our God has spoken. Our God has spoken. Okay, so... Then part two, this will be my main section. Why do we believe the Bible is the word of God and therefore authoritative? So why do we believe this? Why though do we believe though that the Bible is the word of God and is therefore authoritative? I'm gonna read our statement of faith again because I really, I think it just summarizes the scriptural teaching matter, teachings on the matter. This is what it says. These scriptures are, are self-authenticating and are not dependent upon men or tradition for their authority. Rather, they are authored by God who is himself truth and are to be received because they are his word. They are known as truth by those who know God, by the testimony of the spirit of truth who indwells all believers and who leads them into all truth. Now, obviously, there's a lot more that could be said there, but I think that's capturing the foundation of it. Okay, these scriptures are self-authenticating and are not dependent on men or tradition for their authority. In a word, at the most foundational level, I believe the scriptures are their own authority. Now, I'm going to make a very technical side note. If I lose you, don't feel bad. This is just a sub-point, but this might be bothering someone, okay? Okay. I am claiming here that I think the scriptures are self-authenticating, therefore dependent on themselves. In a word, there is nothing that can stand over the scriptures judging them. Okay? There's nothing that can stand over them and judging them. They bear their own authority. The challenge here is if someone's taking logic classes, they would say, but this claim to authority is what you would call circular. I don't know if you ever heard that. Okay, this is circular. In other words, what is claiming to be authority is bearing its own own authority and I would say it is circular but not viciously so (laughs) meaning I think any claim to an ultimate standard of truth will be necessarily circular if I lost you don't worry but if any claim to an ultimate standard of truth will be circular for example if someone says we determine truth through reason they would necessarily have to prove that through reason if that's a standard. If you believe science and sense perception is the way truth is determined, you'd have to prove that. How? Through science and sense perception. Otherwise, whatever you use to prove that then becomes a standard of authority. So scripture, we believe, is its own authority. But the question, therefore, to ask, we're not at a loss then in looking at worldview. The logical question, therefore, to ask when we look at all these different claims of authority Which worldview and standard of truth is able to most completely and rightly explain the universe? Do you hear that? Which worldview is, which worldview or standard of truth is able to completely and rightly explain the universe? And my contention, biblical Christianity is not just the best possibility, it is the only possibility. Christianity, as taught by the scriptures, is not just the best possibility, it is the only possibility. Now, if you're more curious on that circular stuff, you can follow up with me later, but, I'll leave that there for now. But the main pay- takeaway on this point, right? The script I'm saying the scriptures are completely authoritative in all manners it speaks to because it is God's word. Okay, but why? Then you can ask follow-up, but why? Why do we believe it is God's word? And uh, it's an interesting question to think about because there are so many layers to, I think, how each one of us would answer this. Now, I probably wouldn't say this necessarily to an unbeliever, but The most foundational reason I initially believed in the scriptures is because my parents told me it was the word of God. They did. Thank you. I'm serious. They told me it was the word of God. They lived it as the word of God. They read it to me. They prayed it over me. I saw them read it. It built a serious foundation in this guy that won't be easily shaken. I still remember when I was eight, I got my first Bible as well, my first full Bible. I was so proud of that thing. <laughs> had a blue leather cover on it to keep it safe. It even—it was a full Bible, but it even had some full-color pictures in it, about ten of them. You remember? I think it's still at your house, mom and dad. Yeah. But then one day, I actually—I took it to a Bible study. Ten years later, I was 18, and my friend leaned over. He's like, "Oh, your Bible has pictures in it." So I—so ret- I retired that Bible. That, that was the end of that, but <laughs> okay, I, I'm off track, but I, it's still at my mom and dad's house. But the point I'm making is just the, all of my life, you know, growing up in scriptures, and I'm just going to say it again, it built a foundation which will not be easily shaken, if I'm being honest. That was the initial foundation stone, the cornerstone, uh, and I am beyond grateful for that, mom and dad. I pray that I would do the same for little Timothy. And so, yeah, in application, um, parents, tell your children that the Bible is the Word of God. And don't just tell them, read it to them, and show by your actions that you believe that is the case. At the end of the day, it's probably gonna be the most persuasive thing to them. Amen. And I would also say, even just in general, even if you're not a parent as a Christian, to someone you're evangelizing or walking with. The most one of the most persuasive things will be that you just speak it and you live it. And you believe this is the word of God. That's how God has wired ordained it and so I am thankful for it. Now to be honest, that's not exactly the argument that I'm going to throw at an unbeliever because the Muslim man could respond and say, "Well, my parents told me that the Quran was the word of God and now we're just saying my dad's smarter than your dad." <laughs> and um so it only goes so far. <laughs> it's, it's still standing Yeah. I would I do believe that. <laughs> um but, but, so, but, then, but why, okay? But why why today? Why today do I believe the scriptures are the word of God? Um, why when I, I sit down in the morning and open the scriptures to do my devotions, why do I stand up here? Why do I believe it's the word of God? Okay, and uh, I would say most fundamentally, and I would even say this to an unbeliever, most foundationally, I believe the Bible is the word of God because one, it claims to be the word of God, and as we read it, the Spirit himself bears witness that, are these, that are, these are his words. The very Spirit of God who inspired the words bears witness that these are my words. In other words, I inspired this, yes, and these are my words. In a way, I'm saying this is the word carrying its own authority. And this is actually what the Scripture teaches about it. In 2 Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, the natural man does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to them. And he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. So if you believe the word of God today, you truly do, I believe it's ultimately because the spirit bears witness in your heart that these are his words. If you believe the scriptures are the word of God, I believe ultimately it's because the spirit is bearing witness. These are my words. My sheep hear my voice and they know me and they follow me. Okay? I hear the sweet voice of my good shepherd as I read the blessed word. And I am, okay, and here's the thing. I am very willing to say that to an unbeliever. I hear the voice of my shepherd when I read this word. And, I, and then I would go on from there and, and, and through these other ways too. But this is the foundational reason. And this has been the foundation for Christians throughout many, many centuries. Um, this is not just some modern fundamentalist thing. No, no, this is how Christians have viewed it through centuries. Uh, the 1689 London Baptist Confession, of course, based off the Westminster here. It says this, we may be moved and induced by the testimony of the church of God to a high and reverent esteem of the holy scriptures, the heavenliness of the matter, the efficacy of the doctrine, the majesty of the style, the consent of all the parts, the scope of the whole, which is to give glory to God, the full discovery it makes of the only way of man's salvation, and many other incomparable excellencies and entire perfections thereof. These are arguments whereby it does itself, abundantly evidence itself to be the word of God. But here's where it's going. Yet notwithstanding, I know this is tougher language, but stay with it. I think it's beautiful. Yet notwithstanding, our full persuasion and assurance of the infallible truth and divine authority of the scriptures is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. Amen? Amen. Our full assurance and persuasion and of the divine authority is from the inward work of the Holy Spirit, bearing witness by and with the word in our hearts. And I think the gift from God is that this will deepen over time. I believe that the more time we spend in his word, hearing God's word, living by the word, the deeper and in more ways, the Holy Spirit will persuade us that this is his word. Spurgeon said, nobody ever outgrows the scripture. The book widens and deepens with our years. And I think our persuasion that this is his word will widen and deepen with with the years and have very many different aspects and angles. And so then you'd ask the question, well, what does this have to do with apologetics, and I would say, well, more than we think, a lot more than we think. Whenever someone asks me a question about the scriptures or why I trust the scriptures in apologetics, my number one goal is I want to get you in the scriptures. I go, have you read it? Have you read this book? Because I'm persuaded that as they read it, then they'll believe it. Sometimes, right? As they read it, then the spirit will work through it. I mean, well, I could talk to you about why I trust it, but have you read it? And can we figure out a way to get you to read it? I have Bibles in my car for this reason. Like, I want to get a Bible in their hand. And what I like to do is I open it up and because people are really intimidated by an entire Bible, put a marker in John or Mark, right? Just an easy gospel. Put a marker in John and say, read this. Start right here, read this. Our longing is we want them to get into the word. We want to let the spirit do his work. And then also, uh, you're going to probably notice as I'm even preaching this sermon, the things that I'm really sharing are specific things that the Lord has persuaded of my own heart as I've been reading the word of God. And they're very sweet to me. And I've noticed, and I share these things with unbelievers, and I have noticed that these things that are sweet to my heart is what is most persuasive to people. Okay? It is what is most persuasive to people. And so what I want to say, even as an application here, um, kind of at the beginning of this is, I'm going to keep working through it. I think sometime, maybe today or this week, just sit down and kind of like I'm doing here, ask yourself, why do I believe the word of God? What are the different ways that the spirit himself through his word has borne witness that it is his word? And really think through these things and praise the Lord for that. And then think through how those can be reasons that you can even give to people because those are going to be really persuasive. The different, Some of you have read the Bible for about five times as long as Daniel has, maybe plus. You have seen his faithfulness for many decades. I think you have many reasons why the Lord has been faithful in his word. And so share this with people. Share this with people. This is ultimately the most persuasive. So that's my encouragement. Take a moment and just ask that question sometime this week. So that's, I think, a very important foundational point but if I was continuing to make the case, um, I would say this. Another reason I believe the Bible is the word of God, because the Bible, as written by God, provides the only and complete worldview through which the world makes sense. Okay? The Bible, as written by God, provides the only and complete worldview through which the world makes sense against the Quran, against the Veda, against the Book of Mormon, against the thoughts of atheism, agnosticism, scientific, scientism, rationalism. It is the only book through which the world makes sense. Do not conform, Paul says, any longer to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. The pattern that is of Scripture is the only one through which the world makes sense. C.S. Lewis put it this way. I believe in Christianity, and you could say the Scriptures, as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it I see everything else. I really like that. I believe in Christianity and the Scriptures as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And this is a lot of the case that I'm making, even from why I believe in God, right? So the big categories of morality and logic and science, this book, or love or beauty and pain, right? This book, and then further down, suffering, justice, and and the questions of redemption. This book speaks to it. And even further, like actually in the depths of us, in our, in our emotions of sorrow and of depression, of joy and of peace, there's a psalm for that. It speaks to it. It speaks to our human existence and worldview with what is an undeniable divine majesty and insight. It is the only book and worldview that grants an explanation of the world. I just called my friend yesterday to make sure I had his story right, right? Um, I went through the TPA together with him. He's called Jason Contigo. He's a pastor in New York State. He was a New York police detective. Um, and his task was specifically to work with child abuse. So to find out find out these problems that are happening with little children, even sometimes sexual. And it was pretty intense talking with him. But his testimony, the way he described it's like, yeah, this was my testimony. That essentially, after years of seeing some of the darkest stuff that he had That some of us probably could never dream of in the slums of New York. And wrestling with the question how does one explain this? And is there any hope for this little child after this? And realizing that his worldview did not give an answer. He found his way to Christ and the scriptures. And he's like, this is it. This is it. Not only does this explain the pain and the suffering, but there is justice coming. But there's also redemption for this little child. And there's hope and there's healing. and This is the only one. So if you ever get to talk with this dude, Jason Contigo, what a blessed brother. And he actually went into the ministry because he wanted everyone to know about this. And he was ordained about six months ago down in Long Island. Just amazing, amazing story. What will make this person whole again? All these questions, right? The scriptures is the only book I think that can provide this complete worldview. I also believe the Bible, because as a book, it is made up, of, as a collection, it is made up of 66 books written by 40 different authors, covering hundreds upon hundreds of topics in three different languages over three different continents, written over 1,500 years, and they never contradicted each other and bore one unified message. So let me read that again. The Bible is made up of 66 books written by 40 different authors covering hundreds of thousands of topics in three different languages over three continents written over 1,500 years, and they never contradicted each other but proclaimed one unified message. Um. Brandon, you wrote this. It's on our website. I really liked it, so I stole it. Okay, no, I'm giving credit credit now. It's not stealing. (laughs) These 66 books are like a magnificent choir. There are many distinct voices, but they all sing the same song. Amen? How can so much unity exist in the midst of such diversity? All the authors of the Bible have this in common. The Holy Spirit helped and guided and carried each of them along as they wrote down God's words. Amen. And so what is this unified song and message? This unified song and message is it's all about the Lord Jesus Christ to the glory of God. This children's song puts it this way. From Genesis to Revelation, there's one story of a great salvation. It's all about Jesus. It's all about Jesus. It's being shouted out from every page. There's one hero that will save the day. It's all about Jesus. From Genesis to Revelation, if you read it, you will see that. One Unified message. Jesus said, This, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you have eternal life, but these are they which testify of me. Or in Luke 24, then beginning with Moses, within all the prophets, he, Jesus, explained to them all the things concerning himself in the scriptures. Now, in response to this, the unified message, I've heard some people say, Well, hold on, there's contradictions in the Bible. And the way I just generally like to respond, well, I read it through this many times and I've never come upon one. But if you want to, but if you want to uh, find some and bring them up to me, we could talk about them. I'll happily do that. No, I might not have an answer right away, but I'll look into it at least. This is actually somewhat what Spurgeon said. He said, men talk of the mistakes of scripture. I thank God that I have never met any. (laughs) Mistra- mistakes of translation there may be for translators are men but mistakes of the word original word there can never be for the God who spoke is infallible and so is every word he speaks and in that confidence we find delightful rest. I like that. Amen. So again, if someone brings up hey, there's contradictions well, I've read it um, but let's let's talk about them. Let's bring them up you know because people normally just they have heard that somewhere. Next, I believe in the scriptures. Because its authors, particularly in the New Testament, were eyewitnesses of the events that they recorded. And uh, in the New Testament, this is really made clear. Its authors were eyewitnesses of the events that they recorded. So I actually uh, turn to 1 John 1.1. 1 John 1.1. Here we go. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the word of life. I mean, how else could he have made it more clear that he was an eyewitness? Right? Which we have heard, which we saw with our eyes, we looked upon, and our hands have handled. He needed to repeat it twice. We saw with our eyes, and we looked upon. Okay? We're eyewitnesses of this stuff. Is that empirical enough for you? Yeah. In other words, what John recorded, he is saying, I literally saw this. We literally saw these things. Another one, Luke chapter 1, and I'm going to read verses 1 through 4. You can turn there. Luke 1, 1 through 4. Luke 1, 1 through 4. First four verses of Luke. We go. Inasmuch as many have taken it in hand to set in order a narrative of those things which have been fulfilled among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses of the ministers of the word delivered to us, it seemed good to me. Also, having had perfect understanding of all things from the very first, to write to you an orderly account, most excellent Theophilus, that you may know the certainty of this thi- these things in which you were instructed. Now, Luke is saying, I wasn't maybe a specific eyewitness, but these things were reported to us from them who are themselves very eyewitnesses. And my task, he's saying, is to write down an orderly narrative. Of the things that were literally seen by eyewitnesses. Now, I think what's an even more interesting point from an empirical standpoint, and uh, Vodi Bakum helped me see this, he said, all these things were written at the time of other eyewitnesses, which is important, okay? All these things were written at the time of other eyewitnesses, okay? So, 1 Corinthians 15. Either you can just listen along or you can flip there if you want. So 1 Corinthians 15, 3-8. And so here Paul is making the case for specifically the resurrection, I think as recorded in the Word. This is what he says. For I delivered to you, first of all, that which I also receive, that Christ died to our sins according to the Scriptures, and that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the Scriptures. So appeal to the Scriptures here. And then he was seen by Cephas, then by the 12, and then he was seen by over 500 brethren at once. Okay, this is the point I'm making here. Of whom the greater part remained to the present, but some have fallen asleep. In other words, there is at least 301, or I think 200, maybe 251, individuals who are alive at this time when Paul wrote this. His point, you can check my sources. Okay. There are at there are hundreds of eyewitnesses that are still alive that you can go check this story on. That is really hard to mess up. <laughs> Whom the greater part remain to the present, at a minimum 250, at a minimum. Again, I just think this bears undeniable proof. Now these now I would keep going. This is a slightly different point, but within the same vein, these same eyewitnesses bore witness to events, sometimes supernatural events, were, which were prophesied centuries to millenniums before. Do you hear this? These eyewitnesses that we're talking about are bearing witness to these supernatural events which are prophesied centuries to over a millennium before, at a minimum 400 years before. And I think this is one of the precious things about reading the scriptures Right? The whole Bible is because if you read from left to right, you're going to read all these prophecies. And by the time you get to the right side, the New Testament, then you're going to see them being fulfilled. Hundreds of them. Now, I'm actually just going to read a list of them. This is going to probably take a couple minutes. But just so you this is a very small sampling of fulfilled prophecies in Jesus Christ. But I'm just going to read a summary of them. And realize this is a small sampling, but just so you, you feel somewhat of the weight of what was fulfilled in the presence of eyewitnesses. So in Genesis twenty two eighteen, 18, God said all the nations would be blessed through Abraham's offspring. Numbers 24, 17 said Jesus would be from the line of Jacob. Isaiah 11, 1, Jesus would be from the line of Jesse. Jeremiah 23, 5 through 6, Jesus would be from the line of David. Micah 5 2, Jesus would be born in Bethlehem. Isaiah 7.14, he would be born from a virgin. Isaiah 9 6 through 7, he would be born and the government would be upon his shoulders. Psalm seventy two ten, he would be worshipped and given gifts at his birth. Okay, that's just his birth. His life. Psalm forty, six through eight, he would be the perfect sacrifice. Psalm seventy eight, one through two, he would teach in parables. Second Samuel seven twelve through thirteen he would be of the line of David. Isaiah nine one through two his ministry would begin in Galilee. Isaiah forty three through four his ministry would be preceded by a voice calling aloud in the desert. Isaiah fifty three verse three he would be despised and rejected. Zechariah nine nine he would come riding on a donkey. Zechariah eleven thirteen he would be betrayed for thirty pieces of silver. That's just his life. This is just a couple from his death. Exodus 12, 21 through 23, he would be the Passover lamb. Exodus 12, 46, and Numbers 9, 12, none of his bones would be broken. Numbers 21, 9, he would be lifted up as a serpent in the wilderness. Psalm 22, 1, he would be forsaken. Psalm 22, 8, he would be mocked. Psalm 22, 15, his mouth would be dry. Thousands, A thousand years before. Psalm twenty-two sixteen, 16, his hands and feet would be pierced. Verse 18, Lots would be cast for his clothing. Psalm thirty-one five. He would commit his spirit to God. And then Psalm sixteen ten. And this is what the apostles preach: He would not be abandoned to the dead, but be resurrected from the dead. And what the New Testament is saying is there are hundreds of eyewitnesses who saw these things take place, and you could go check with them. <laughs> and I was I was reflecting on this. It's just like, well, God could have just literally, without prophecy caused Jesus to be born and we would have had to believe in him. So what's the purpose of the prophecy? And I I think in large part, the purpose of the prophecy is for us. That we might see, we might believe, we might praise God for keeping his promises. Yeah, these same eyewitnesses bore witness to events, supernatural events, prophesied centuries to millenniums before. I'm actually not excited clothing with these ones, so... Another reason I would give, this is maybe not the most logical tie argument, but I really, it's meant a lot to me. I think there is a and a majesty, and a beauty in the style and in the words. A heavenliness, a majesty, and a beauty in the style and the words. I believe many people have been soundly converted because they were just reading the Bible and one day the Spirit opened their heart to see such things could only have been penned by the hand of God. Next, and finally, the final reason I am persuaded that this is God's word is because it is the only book that perfectly reveals the Lord Jesus Christ. Though the Bible gives a very clear understanding of sin in the world, it's been described that the Bible is able to describe mankind. How is man so noble, right? Made in the image of God. But how can man do such vile things at the same time? How do you deal with that? The scripture's answer is, man was made in the image of God, but man fell. And so though scripture teaches this and that there's sin and there's, in, in the world and there's going to be judgment. And though I know by the scriptures, I stand condemned before God. Also revealed in these blessed pages is a story of redemption and hope so glorious that no man could have dreamed it up. It's a really good story. These are the kind of things that angels long to look into. It is a story so glorious in redemption and hope that no man could have dreamed it. In fact, it is so awe-inspiring that its very mystery is only discerned when it is revealed to them by the spirit of him who authored it. These things which angels long to look into. Again Francis Schaeffer put it this way if there's no God who exists we're doomed but if there's a God who exists and does not speak we're equally doomed but if there's a God who exists and who speaks then our salvation will be found in his words. Our salvation is found in his words because in this book is revealed the story of the blessed son of God the Lord Jesus Christ because we were all dead in our sins and trespasses we all transgressed we are noble but very vile in our sins. But God so loved the world. And you really, I feel like we say this a lot, but, but just slow down and realize how astonishing this claim is. God literally became man because he so loved the world. He literally became man and was born of a virgin in a very specific stable on a very specific night at a very specific time in a very specific town. And he came, God literally became man to come and die. And then this same Jesus Christ lived this perfect life. But all along, going where? Where? Going to the cross. Where he was going to be crucified on a certain cross, on a certain hill, Golgotha, outside of a very specific city at a very specific time. And it was going to please Yahweh to crush him. To please God to crush him in our place. The Lord Jesus Christ hung, God himself hung on the cross. And was punished in our place for what we rightly deserve. You can't dream this stuff up. Then they laid him in the tomb. And there were three days to fulfill a prophecy. Again. And then... Our God rose him in power from the dead. He had conquered sin and he had conquered death and anyone who believes in him will be saved. Anyone who believes in him will be saved. And it's not only that, he's sitting at the right hand of God and he is interceding for his people now. It's so glorious and beautiful that no man could have dreamed that I even just find that it's hard to use the right words to give you the sense that I want to give you of how magnificent this is. And so this book, though it explains the world, is the book which also explains a salvation. The only way of salvation through which we might be saved. And this is the first time you're reading this. Actually, something I really need to add. What's even more shocking, he doesn't say okay, now work all your way to me and then you'll be saved. It's like, no, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. Not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his grace, he will save us. He'll save you based upon what the Lord Jesus Christ did. You can't make this stuff up. So I'm so thankful to our God that he did this. And if you do believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, you will be saved. The God who prophesied all those great prophecies in scripture, he will make sure that happens and you will be in glory with him forever. So believe on the Lord Jesus Christ today. If you have any further questions about the scriptures or about this story, we want to talk with you. 1 Corinthians 2, 6-10 says this, Among the mature we do not impart wisdom, although it is not a wisdom of the age or of the rulers of this age who are doomed to pass away, but we impart a secret and hidden wisdom of God, which God decreed before the ages for our glory. None of the rulers of this age understood this, for if they had, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, when no eye has seen nor ear heard near the heart of man imagined what God has prepared for those who love him, these things God has revealed to us through the Spirit. Through the Spirit searches everything, even the depths of God. In this blessed word. We believe in this word, and I'm so thankful that our God who exists was willing to stoop to speak it to us. Amen. I want to now just open up for a chance of prayer. So whatever's on your heart, there's going to be some brothers running with mics. So if you're willing to pray, just raise your hand and they'll bring it to you. Yes, Lord. It's beautiful to hear everyone's hearts. I don't have much to add. Just my heart is overflowing with thankfulness. Thank you for giving us your word and thank you that your spirit has worked to persuade us that this is your word. Deepen us in your word. Thy word is truth. In Jesus' name we pray all these things. Amen.